Once a year, each year, Nicholas Lindholm waits for the perfect spring day. There's hardly any wind. Usually, you know, the sun is out. It's kind of warm. It's not very humid. When the weather's just right, he gathers a small group of friends and family in a blueberry patch. I typically have a handful of people who have done this before, and they like it so much as I do, they come and do it. But then I also usually have one or two people who have never done it. They all don leather boots and cotton clothing. No sandals or synthetic materials. Lindholm himself wears a full firefighter's costume. The followers all wear spray packs filled with water. But Lindholm's spray pack holds something else. I have a 50-50 mix of diesel and kerosene in about a gallon-sized drip torch. After a group meeting, the crew gathers behind Lindholm and sets every inch of the field on fire. This is the step in the cycle where death turns to life. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're on a farm in Penobscot, Maine, visiting one of the last wild blueberry growers who burns his field by hand every single year. That's after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean Foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away! Throw our last crunch berry! No! No one steals my crunch berries. I think you mean my crunch berries. Choose your own crunch venture with Tapping Crunch. Nicholas Lindholm never set out to be a blueberry grower. He moved to Maine to study anthropology and religion at Bates College and only got involved in food production after working on a couple of organic farms in the region. After, oh, five or six years on three or four different farms, I I knew that this is what I wanted to do. The blueberry piece was completely coincidental. He and his wife were looking for land to farm, and they bought a plot that just happened to have a patch of wild blueberries growing on it. As, as an anthropologist, you know, the world shapes you as much as you try and shape the world around you. So here we are 25 to 30 years later, and uh, actually I am a wild blueberry farmer. He and his wife now run Blue Hill Berry Company, which sells wild Maine blueberries at farmer's markets and CSAs throughout the region. I now feel 
like this is what I was meant to be doing. Like this is so enriching, so engaging, um, and and working with this native crop and its native land with its deep genetic diversity is just so powerful um, for me. The species that Lindholm works with, it's called Vaccinium angustifolium. And it's not your average supermarket blueberry, which is, you know, perfectly round, kind of watery, all very uniform. Lindholm's growing a native crop in its native soil. So his berries have these deep, deep genetic diversities. They grow in all different sizes and colors. This is the only area of the world where these species can grow and thrive and is produced uh, as agricultural crops. So that comes through in a really rich tapestry of flavors, colors, sizes. The downside is that these berries can be really finicky. They're difficult to propagate, they grow slowly, and they're really, really picky about the soil. They prefer this rocky glacial ground beneath Maine and the Canadian Maritimes. The typical word would be rugged. It's kind of like a rugged coastline. What makes it trickier is that there's not a ton of wild blueberry growers left in Maine. And much like the land that they work, the few who still do it can be a bit rough. It's that kind of individualistic nature, um, which is kind of the Yankee and the Maine way. Um, I'm not going to say it's a level of distrust or lying, but just people keep information to themselves. Um, They figured out how to do things themselves and are leaving you free to figure things out yourself. Because there are so few wild blueberry growers left in the region to begin with, Lindholm was up against a steep learning curve, especially when it came to the burning. Blueberry burns in Maine are an agricultural technique with somewhat unclear origins. And I have spoken with Maine native people who have, you know, strong understanding and belief that it is something that was carried on for millennia. But I'm not in a position to speak towards that. We reached out to several indigenous groups to learn more about the origins of these burns, but we haven't heard back yet. What we do know is that over the last century, Maine's wild blueberry growers have used burning to encourage regrowth while also eliminating weeds, insects, and diseases. The plant above ground is only about, they say, one-third of the actual plant itself. When you destroy that one-third of the plant above ground by burning, parts of the plant underground are invigorated to send up new growth, new shoots, new buds, new fruit production. Nicholas is one of the few blueberry farmers who still do the burn by hand. Most of the others have moved on to mechanized burns using these tractors outfitted with, I'm I'm just going to call it a flamethrower. It's not the technical term, but close enough. And they allow a single person to do on any day, even a rainy day, what it takes Nicholas and five or six friends to do on a perfect day. But the difference is that the mechanized burns use diesel oil, which burns so hot that it damages what's called the duff layer, a layer of topsoil full of vital nutrients. So Nicholas isn't particularly tempted by the shortcut. So much of agricultural work has been devalued in our culture um, to the point where very few people even want to do it. And a lot of the mechanization takes meaning away. So for me, the burn has all this rich meaning. So to to abandon that work is to abandon that meaning. 
After 25 years, Nicholas has his burning process down. But in those early days, it was quite literally trial by fire. There's no manual. There's no training course. There's no, uh, no YouTube video or, or webinar that I've ever attended. Uh, I, I learned by doing. His first attempt at burning was just shy of catastrophic. It was just him, a friend, and an old-time blueberry grower from the area who didn't have much of a process at all. And he just started lighting one edge and just let it go. And it was, it was very nerve-wracking having to put it out as the flames were racing right up to us. I don't know how we did it. We were young and foolish and we did okay. Um, but I'd say that very first experience gave me the need to try and do it a little safer, a little better. <laughs> the following year, Lindholm joined the local volunteer fire department. He wanted to meet locals and get involved with his community, but he was also hoping to learn his way around a fire. It just so happened that some of the other firefighters owned wild blueberry patches too. So, you know, to have a connection with them, have them know me, trust me, and to get the training even, um, you know, working and understanding of, of fire and uh, how to suppress it and control it as best you can. That was all important. He made small tweaks year after year until his process was so smooth, so secure, that he felt comfortable inviting spectators. Maine photojournalist Greta Rebus was there for 2020's burn. There's this thing that I really like seeing or that I look for, which is when people's knowledge is so extensive or practice that it looks like intuition. And I saw that with Nicholas. Well, the burn is a springtime thing. The process actually starts in the fall, right about now. In fact, just after the harvest, Nicholas lays straw over his fields that over the course of the winter will get packed into the ground to fuel the fire come spring. Then, on that perfect spring day, Lindholm will dust off his drip torch, call some friends and family, and the day's got to be dry, but not too dry. And a little wind helps, but too much can be dangerous. We start by burning the outside perimeter, and we'll burn um, what we call a fire break, basically a swath of ground about 20 to 30 feet wide, roughly. From a bird's eye view, it looks like a nice thick ring burned around the inside edge of the field. And that's like really the painstaking slow work um, that requires all hands on deck. It's also just really hard, hot, sweaty work. It's really smoky, like little pieces of ash that kind of blow around and it smells really different than the fire that I'm used to. I just remember this being a little more clean and light. Once the fire break is established, Nicholas touches off the inner circle, steps back, and lets the fire do its thing. There's also this point of like almost release where nothing can be done, but just trust that the perimeter holds, which it does. The smoke, almost seems to make this different atmospheric condition where the light is filtering through in a different way and um, color seems slightly different because of the way the light is filtering through. 
I feel like there's a primal part of us that is wired to see fire as as bad or um, a threat. And this is a very intentional use of fire. And it feels really surreal to watch people walk through that. And it felt like being on a different planet. With the inner circle all scorched, the crew's work is done. But to Lindholm, it was never just about the work in the first place. It's an annual ritual. Um, and as with all rituals, you know, there's purpose, but there's also joy and celebration. There's always, you know, rebonding of folks in our crew who have done this with me before, joining with new people and touching base by setting the ground on fire. Kind of a unique gathering point. And usually after a good burn is when you then open up a good cold beer <laughs> and just say, phew, we got away with it again. This episode was reported by Luke Fader. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder-Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall, and I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I'll see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher.